Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Every election season, we see front yards of our neighbors filled with lawn signs and our mailboxes are flooded with campaign flyers. Some campaigns can spend big bucks on these things, but we don't always think about the political messaging behind them. Welcome to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we look at the laws and trends surrounding our upcoming elections. In 2020, Connecticut was recognized by Common Cause, a nonprofit group out of Washington, D.C. The group said that Connecticut's Citizens Election Program was a national model when it comes to financing political candidates. The Citizens Election Program is run by the State Election Enforcement Commission, or the SEEC. Here to talk about the commission is Senior Attorney and Spokesman Joshua Foley. Welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having me, Kalila. You know, I want to start with a really basic question because this is one that I grappled with understanding and I'm sure our listeners will as well. Give us a quick overview. What exactly is the State Elections Enforcement Commission and what is its charge? Uh, the Elections Commission was formed in the 70s in the wake of Watergate. It was one of three watchdog agencies established in Connecticut along with the Freedom of Information Commission and the Ethics Commission. And originally our charge was to enforce all election laws and to give compliance advice on campaign finance law. That was true for the first 35 years of our existence until 2005 when um, another scandal caused another piece of legislation and we passed the Public Act 2005-5, which was campaign finance reform and um, our agency was mandated to run the Citizens Election Program, which is a public financing program here in Connecticut, and to also run the ECRIS database, which is an online uh, database of campaign finance filings, uh, which is available for the public to use, and it's on our website. And since then, we've been doing all of those things. Let me ask another sort of clarifying question, because I think also when you talked about enforcement and making sure that the integrity is preserved, some people may wonder, well, what's the distinction or the relationship to the Secretary of State's office, given that they also play such a key role? What's the relationship between those two agencies? Sure. That's kind of a common question we get. The Secretary of State's office is charged with administering the elections. So they run the elections and um, the Secretary of State is the commissioner of elections. But it's an elected position. Um, So I think part of the thinking was that the Enforcement Commission, our commission, um, has to be independent from even that because it's an elected office and they're part of our regulated community. I think it's really important to understand those differences because it also shows the importance, the need, and the value of having an independent authority that is nonpartisan and can really preserve the integrity of a process, regardless of ideology, regardless of, you know, endorsement or support or any party. And all of that helps gives the voters of the state of Connecticut 
greater confidence that someone is looking out for their interest. And that is really the driving force. One of the areas where this has come up quite a bit recently is in the city of Bridgeport. The Elections Enforcement Commission is currently investigating a claim about the mishandling of absentee ballots in that city after a video footage was released of a woman allegedly dropping stacks of papers into a box. I know that you cannot comment on that particular investigation, but I think, Joshua, it has raised questions for people in Connecticut about the rules of absentee ballots and how your commission helps preserve the integrity of that. What are the guidelines? Well, as uh, you said, I can't speak directly about ongoing investigations. The um, separation of powers, if you will, between us and the Secretary of State's office, that is a question that they are have jurisdiction to answer, like how to interpret those laws. Our commission is um, a citizen commission. So we answer to not an elected official, but five citizens of the state of Connecticut. And by design, it's bipartisan. So there's two Republicans, two Democrats, and an independent. But they take their jobs very seriously. And um, absentee voter fraud uh, is one of the things that they take incredibly seriously. Um, We look back at our um, 40 or 50 years of our existence, and we keep track of all these things. And I do want to make the point that um, voter fraud and absentee voter fraud in particular are rare. They're very rare in the scope of our history, especially considering all the votes that have taken place in that time, the millions and millions of votes. That isn't to say that any time it's acceptable. It's always um, something that's taken very seriously by the commission. So one of the things that's also taken seriously that I hear this quite a bit is this sort of charge to voters or to the people of the state that if you care about the direction of the state, you care about the future of the state, get involved in the process. And one way to get involved is by running for elected office. So before we even get to the point of enforcement, we need to have a strong pool of candidates. Sometimes, Joshua, people get confused about those who declare themselves as candidates versus those whose names actually appear on the ballot. What are those requirements for people in the state who say, look, I want to serve, I want to pursue elected office, and the ways that you see this working of what it takes, it's not enough to just raise your hand, what it takes to actually make it onto the ballot? Well, there's a couple different um, answers to that question, and it's a complicated one because um, there's a lot of different aspects about becoming a candidate. one common misperception is that you can just announce that you're a candidate and you become instantly transformed into a candidate. It's a defined term in our statute. And the most common way to become a candidate is to get the nomination of your party. But also, you can become a candidate by raising money or spending money. Those are making, getting contributions or making expenditures that triggers your candidacy. You can um, turn in petitions. That's another way you become a candidate. Um, When you become a candidate, though, you do have an obligation to file with either the town clerk, if you're running for municipal office, or with us, if you're running for statewide office, to tell the public how you're going to fund your campaign. And the most common way you're going to fund your campaign is by forming a committee, a candidate committee. And a committee is essentially just a treasurer and a piece of paper in a bank account where you file a piece of paper with us. You get a treasurer, they open up a bank account, and all the money that you raise, all the money you spend goes through that bank account and gets disclosed. 
if you're a new candidate, you have this option um, in Connecticut of joining our public financing program, which is um, something that not a lot of other states have, where you can voluntarily join our program and then start raising money from your constituents in small dollar amounts. And if you reach a certain threshold, you can apply to the state and get a big public grant, which allows you to run for office competitively. And since the CEP, the Citizens Election Program, is so well used, you're probably going to be running against somebody who else is similarly financed. And so the playing field is pretty level. And it gives um, people who want to run for office for the first time, as well as anybody else, um, a path into the electoral process that is competitive and um, wasn't maybe necessarily available 30 years ago. So if people are not familiar, share with us how that program is funded, because what you just said about giving a better chance at a more even playing field, given the extreme, I would say, obscene amount of money that is spent in campaigns and elections, how is that program funded? And do you see the success of that program of saying, yes, it is possible that you don't have to be independently wealthy, but you could utilize this program to not just get your name out there, but to really have a chance at winning? Yeah, there's. Uh, we should be really proud of the program in Connecticut because it's very well used. It's well financed, um, but the financing for from it for it comes from um, what's called the Ashits Fund. It's the Abandoned Property Fund. So it's money that was sitting in our treasury. And um, it could be used for other purposes, for sure, but it's being used for this purpose, um, which is to ensure not only uh, clean elections, but the appearance of clean elections. It allows um, the public to have more faith that their elected public officials weren't legislating to impress their their largest contributor because their contributors aren't large. They're small dollar contributors from their own districts, which is kind of the point that they should, shouldn't be beholden to big contributors or special interest PACs. They can really just focus on doing the legislation for the people who elected them. Um, that's a real benefit of the CEP. Um, and it does allow people without large financial resources to compete um, on the same uh, with the same amount of resources as just about anybody else. And one of the another interesting thing about Connecticut is that when you have a candidate committee in Connecticut, you it's for it's a durational committee for a single election. So after the election, you have to distribute all the money. If you use the CEP, you give it all back to the state. But it allows uh, candidates or it prevents candidates from building up war chests from election cycle to election cycle, so that. Once you're in the office, you stay in office forever because you just got an overwhelming cash advantage. Everybody starts from square one every single election in Connecticut. It sounds, Joshua, that Connecticut is really leading the way in, in key areas of saying we want people to have access to this process. We want people who are willing to run to be able to do so. We want not just the practice, but also the perception of fairness and being able to have as transparent a process as possible. And because those who will be elected to especially these statewide offices, but also in local areas as well, will be representing the people of Connecticut, we want the people to be able to have that space. I think that's critical for candidates. The question that also comes up to me is, well, what about the interests that want to support particular candidates or issues, or in some ways work against particular candidates and issues? 
what's the role of any of the commission in, you know, groups that may want to fund campaign ads, or we always hear ad paid for by a particular group. What's the role of the commission in that level of influence? Well, we enforce all of the election laws, including the ones you're talking about, um, which we call attribution laws. Um, That's probably the most commonly um, known uh, campaign finance law. It's the little language that goes at the bottom of the ads, paid for by, approved by. Everybody knows that should be on there. Um, And it may seem sort of bureaucratic or um, unimportant, but that those little laws are actually pretty important. They allow um, the voters to know who's paying for the for the ads. They um, know who is not paying for the ads. Uh, increases the accountability of the speaker so that you're you own your speech. And it also allows us as a commission to investigate if a complaint comes in about the those ads or mailers or whatnot. Because I like to think of those attributions as breadcrumbs. Like when you see the ad and you see a little name on it, you might say, well, I don't know what, you know, Americans for America PAC is all about. It doesn't really tell me much, but it does tell you that you can look on our website in ECRIS, our database, and find out more about them, who who they are, um, who's the chairperson, who's the treasurer, and you can look at all their campaign filings. So you could see who gave them money and what they spent their money on. And that's true of candidate committees or political committees or party committees that are spending on these things. And that's mostly who it is. But I think you're also getting at the the kind of elephant in the room, which is independent expenditures. When people who are not associated with candidates, maybe they're outside groups, maybe they're some corporation from, you know, out of state, and they want to spend money in Connecticut and they're allowed to. But Connecticut does have these really strong um, disclosure laws, which means that if they do spend money in Connecticut, they have to file paperwork with us. They have to show where they're getting their money. They have to have um, disclaimer statements at the bottom, attributions, which say who they are, and also the breadcrumbs to where the public can learn more about them on our website. To get back to your original statement, the Connecticut does kind of push um, the envelope on a lot of these issues with the CEP and with our disclosure laws with independent for independent expenditures. We are the quintessential laboratory of democracy. Um, and we um, are pretty experimental. And I think that's kind of cool. I think it's also cool to be the laboratory for democracy. And I look forward to partnering so that we can get the word out to the people of Connecticut and to continue to exercise what is really the simplest tools of democracy. Joshua Foley is senior attorney and spokesman for Connecticut State Election Enforcement Commission. Thank you for all the great work that you're doing, Joshua. Thank you so much. You can find a link to the State Election Enforcement Commission's campaign reporting system that's known as ECRIS on our webpage. Just go to ctpublic.org slash disrupted and find this episode. When we return, we'll hear from an election researcher on the trends surrounding Gen Z voters. They're identifying a lot less with political parties and the traditional political party system. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Let's turn our attention now to America's youngest voters. Generation Z, or Gen Z, consists of those born in 1997 or later. That's according to the Pew Research Center. Pew also reports that Gen Z is more racially and ethnically diverse than previous generations. And by 2026, Gen Z will be majority non-white. The U.S. Census Bureau also predicts that in 2028, Gen Z and millennials will comprise over half of America's potential voters. Joining me now to provide more insight into the voting potential of Gen Z is Ruby Bell Booth. She's elections coordinator at Tisch College's Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement. It's also known as CIRCLE on the campus of Tufts University. Ruby Bell, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to learn more about the work of CIRCLE. It comes up in a lot of different areas. Share with our listeners the work of CIRCLE, and then in particular, what your role is there as elections coordinator. Yeah, CIRCLE is a research center that studies youth civic engagement and how young people engage with our democracy. And we look at it in a lot of different ways. We look at civic education in the formal education system, in the K-12 education system. We look at youth in media, and of course, we look at youth in voting. And our main focus is really trying to understand the barriers that young people face when it comes to participating in our democracy and participating in their communities and thinking about what work can be done to overcome those barriers. And I am the elections coordinator, which means that I do a lot of our work around youth voting and elections and studying how young people's beliefs and their experiences either help or hinder their ability to get involved in our democracy. We're talking in particular now about Generation Z or Gen Z. Tell us who is captured in that group, because I think there's also a lot of confusion about what group people are into, and then what you've seen in terms of Gen Z disrupting some of the patterns that we expect in democracy when it comes to both registration and turnout. Yeah, Gen Z is folks who are aging into the electorate right now. Um, Since the 2022 election, there will be over 8 million young people who have turned 18, and they are all a member of Gen Z. Gen Z made up the sort of 18 to 24 age cohort in the most recent election, and it was the first midterm in which they made up that cohort. And 
I like to to sort of flex this point because I'm Gen Z myself, but um, an analysis we did of census data showed that young people voted at a higher rate in 2022 that Gen Z population did than millennials, Gen X, and likely boomers did in their first midterm election, which highlights a trend of historic political engagement that we're seeing among Gen Z. So in 2018, turnout in that midterm election was 28%. And that was over double what turnout was in 2014. And as I'm sure you'll remember, this was happening after the 2016 election. There was a lot of energy and organizing going into the midterms. And there was also a lot of youth organizing in particular around the issue of gun control and gun violence because of the March for Our Lives movement. And we saw in our data that young people who were engaged around that issue were voting at higher rates. And I think that sort of sets the stage for the next four years that we've seen so far and likely what's ahead of young people getting really motivated and energized around issues and then engaging their peers about the same issues and getting them involved in doing a lot of incredible organizing. And when I'm giving these turnout numbers, I'm always talking about 18 to 29-year-olds. So this does include some millennials, um, but it's it's showing the energy that Gen Z is starting to bring to this younger cohort. So in 2020, half of that 18 to 29 age group voted, which was up from 39% in 2016, which was They were both obviously huge elections that got so much media attention. And so it's amazing to see that there was still room to have that 11 point increase on 2016. And then in 2022, we saw that turnout among 18 to 29 year olds was 23%, which was the third highest turnout in a midterm in the last 50 years. So it's pretty incredible to see that Gen Z is breaking records and setting new standards when it comes to youth engagement. And again, I think it's really because they're mobilizing and getting energized around the issues that are really important to them and that are impacting them every single day. This all being said, I think it's important to highlight that there continues to be really deep inequalities in voter turnout by race and widening inequalities by educational attainment both of which are indicative to research we've done that show that there's really an inequitable landscape of opportunities to learn about elections and voting. And there's a lot of work that still needs to be done to make sure that every single young person is going to be able to participate to the extent that they deserve. As I'm listening to you, Ruby Bell, I'm also thinking about the reality that I don't think we give young voters enough credit for how sophisticated they are in making decisions and choices for ordering not just what affects them right now, but what their future will look like. And that disconnect between the holistic sets of issues and concerns that young voters have versus how candidates and political parties and often well-meaning grassroots efforts appeal to them. And I'm thinking in particular of what we saw in, you know, the 2020 presidential election, where people thought the way to connect with young voters is to have a celebrity or an influencer go out because then it's popular. And young people were asking really tough questions to say, like, that's cute that you think the only person I can relate to is this TikTok influencer. But help me know how paying for this college education today will actually allow me to pursue the American dream, however I define that. And if you can't talk about that, 
why are you asking for my vote? If you only come to me during an election, why should I trust that you care about my issues? And so I'm curious then what you see as a solution or a key way to approach dismantling these barriers and really empowering young voters to make these decisions in their best interest in a way that isn't just about party and partisanship, but about them making choices and being connected. What's a way for us to approach this? I think what you just said about staying away from party and partisanship is so important because another way in which Gen Z is being very disruptive following in the footsteps of millennials is they're identifying a lot less with political parties and the traditional political party system, which means that when they're presented with a ballot, they have a desire to understand what every single candidate stands for and not just the party that they're a part of. And that requires a lot of work on behalf of young people to do that research and find all that information that's often really hard to gather. I, for instance, voted in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and they have ranked choice voting for their city council, which means you have to have a really good understanding of 15 plus candidates' policies And that makes it incredibly challenging to figure out how to cast a vote. And I think young people are really hungry to be informed and make really informed choices at the ballot box. So I think that the need to make sure that young people have access to information that makes elections really relevant to their lives is super important. And that doesn't just mean that you're making TikToks. It doesn't just mean that you have contacted them once. It means that we need to be working year round every single year to be helping young people to better understand the ways that our democracy functions in their everyday life, the ways that they can have a voice in their community beyond elections. We need to be making those connections year round so that by the time election time rolls around, young people have a better understanding of what the stakes are and are prepared to cast the ballot. And I think right now we're really failing to do that across the board. And I don't think it should be on young people to make that happen. I think that our media needs to step up. Our civic education systems need to be improved. Campaigns and candidates need to sort of rethink their approach to young people and make sure that they're getting information into the hands of every single young person and making every election feel really relevant and like their voice is actually going to matter and change their lives. I'm so impressed by the work that you do because it's not just about pointing out problems, it's actually offering concrete solutions and making it clear that if you wait until an election, to engage young people, young voters, it's been too late. And yet here we are about to head into what will be a pivotal election year, a pivotal presidential election year. But what I don't want to lose sight of, particularly for young voters, many of the issues and concerns that they have are best addressed at the local and state level. So that need of getting people into the habit of caring about, knowing about, and engaging in elections at every level given that the stakes are so high. And yet as a nation, we are involved in concerns about economic costs that are rising. We're concerned about global instability in the midst of two wars. And I worry sometimes that maybe young people will experience political fatigue 
of feeling like there's so much to care about, so much to be concerned about, and no one's really listening to them. As we head into the 2024 election cycle, what is your message to young people, to young voters, and by extension, really to all of us? What's your message? Yeah, I was going to say that my message really isn't for young voters. It's for everybody else. And I just want to ask how long you expect young voters to be resilient. Young people in general, how long can you expect them to bounce back, setback after setback, you know, trauma after trauma before they become disengaged? I think I personally see it with so many of my peers that it's just really exhausting to try to be politically informed, even not just be engaged, but stay on top of all the news and take in all of that information. It can be really exhausting. And so I think it's hugely important that we are giving young people the support they need to participate. And in reality, that includes support around their mental health. That includes making sure they have the support to get through every single day, not just get to election day. So I think I think my, my message is really for everyone to reconsider how they're showing up for the young people in their lives and in our democracy. Um, and I guess my message to young people is to keep holding all those adults accountable, whether it's our government officials or the people in your life who are making sassy remarks about apathetic and lazy young people, try to hold them accountable when you can, um, because it's really important and your voice is so powerful and I want everyone to be able to use them and not, not get burnt out before they're able to do so. You are a powerful reminder that every movement for change in this country has been led by young people. And we are so grateful that you are leading these movements for greater engagement and understanding. Ruby Bell Booth is Elections Coordinator at Tisch College's Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement on the campus of Tufts University. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Coming up, we'll hear from a roundtable of Gen Z voters. I think the voices that we hear in our generation are very uh, unapologetic about uh, the priorities and the general well-being that we advocate for on a day-to-day basis. You're listening to Disrupted. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about the upcoming election cycle and how Gen Z will affect politics. We turn now to a panel of students led by our Disrupted interns. Letitia Peters is a senior biology and philosophy major at Claremont McKenna College in California. Joey Morgan is a recent graduate of Eastern Connecticut State University with a degree in communications. Joining the panel are Christian Corza, a graduate of UConn Hartford and current campaign manager to Hartford mayoral candidate Arunan Aralampalam. Samuel Weinman is a senior at the University of New Haven studying international affairs 
They're also executive editor of the Campus Horseshoe Magazine. And Yesenia Rodriguez is a graduate of Claremont McKenna College with a degree in international relations and leadership studies. She's now back in her hometown of Philadelphia, working at a nonprofit organization. Joey started the conversation by asking our guests when they became interested in politics. For me, stepping into the world of politics, searching for political information and just having political conversations, um, it's all been a very personal and self-motivated journey for me. Um, So Christian, how did you first become interested and engaged in politics? The 2016 election was a pretty pivotal moment in time, and that's kind of what first spurred my interest in politics. Um, I remember going to school the day after the election, and students that I've gone to school with, you know, my entire life, and then from middle school up until high school, their entire demeanor changed following the results of the 2016 election. And, you know, I had teachers coming up to me and asking me if I was okay after, you know, seeing what had happened the night before. Um, and people making comments about, you know, me being an immigrant and things like that. And I realized, wow, you know, these attitudes are incredibly prevalent and it's not something that just appeared out of nowhere. And I realized that uh, elections definitely have consequences. And I think a lot of people grow up with the attitude or the belief that, you know, regardless of what happens in a presidential race, doesn't really impact you. You don't really see, you know, what what changes on a day-to-day basis. You just kind of are doing your own thing. Uh, but that was the first moment where I realized that um, there are very visible and tangible consequences to to who we elect. Samuel, do you want to say anything uh, to that question? I think that I was always kind of interested in politics, mainly just to be aware of of what's going on around me. Um, but I think that when I really saw um, the importance of being involved in politics, it was when I was in high school. Um, my friend Trevor, um, he's no longer here. He died a couple years ago, but in high school, he was very passionate about like Andrew Yang when he was running and his policies. Um, and throughout the school year, I believe it was my senior year. Um, this went from his own personal passion about Andrew Yang, uh, to mobilizing most of the school, uh, to go to his rallies, even though we weren't of voting age yet. Um, it kind of showed me like just how important it is uh, and to be involved um, and just how much impact one person can have. Yesenia. Um, yeah, I think my whole life has always been very political as someone who's Afro-Latina and who is from a low-income family. I think politics has always been involved in my life and something that I've been talking about with friends and family since I've been young. But I didn't think I truly became engaged in politics until I was around the age of 15 or 16 years old. I joined a grassroots organization and I quickly became um, our citywide chapter's student lead student organizer. Um, And there we worked with the Philadelphia School District and we got political education and we worked to really collect power within students in the school district to create change um, within our own school system. Leticia, why don't you take it from here? Thank you all so much for sharing your inspiring stories about what got you interested in politics in the first place. And that leads me to a question towards Samuel. Um, When it comes to researching policies and candidates, 
where do you get your information from? So for me, I would say that when I'm specifically looking for information, um, I will just try to find that information on some of the main news sources that I read, like the New York Times or like AP News. Um, sometimes I will even look at um, the website for a particular candidate to look at what they're saying. Um, but one thing that I do find is that while I look for information using those uh, sources, um, most of the information usually comes to me first through social media, whether it's on, on Instagram or like, or like TikTok. So I think that's where I get most of my information first, even if that's not where I specifically seek it out. Christian, my question to you is how do you avoid um, the echo chamber of political messages when you are consuming um, information from, you know, social media platforms? Yeah, I think that's a really difficult question, right? Because I think most people would like to believe that they avoid echo chambers that they're they're consuming as, you know, objective of, of a news sources they could find. But I think it's it's difficult to avoid it altogether. Instead of seeking out maybe particular news organization or news entity, I like to follow um, like on social media, specific reporters or people that I know, you know, break news themselves. Um, in my opinion, there's less commentary there. It's more just, you know, people talking about what they're observing, what they saw, what's happening in real time, as opposed to adding a spin, you know, with their opinion on what they think that could mean or what they think might happen as a result of what they're seeing. And I think that's the best way to avoid, you know, building out an echo chamber or filter. I think it happens anyway, right? Even if you if you follow a bunch of reporters, right, it might end up happening that a bunch of them are, you know, CNN reporters, right, or Fox News reporters. It's it's difficult to completely eliminate that aspect of it. But I think trying to seek out as, as objective of a source as possible um, is the best way to do it. Gen Z's relationship with social media when it comes to news information, I think is very unique. So Yesenia, who are some social media figures um, or social media accounts that you follow specifically for news information? Yeah, I feel like when I was younger um, and I was living with my parents and getting ready for school, we would always watch the local news channel, whether that was like ABC News and right after Good Morning America. And that was our main news sites. But as I like grew older and grew out of that, I needed some more flexibility of when I would get my news. So I currently watch Philip DeFranco almost every day. Um, and he puts out about 25 to 35 minute news videos of what's going on um, either internationally or nationally here in America. Um, and that has been really great for consuming for me. So even when I'm getting ready in the morning or when I'm like calming down during the nighttime, I can like watch him when I can and not just during certain times that the news is on. Um, I also go on social media quite a lot and passively get my news through there. Um, so currently, one of my favorite um, media platforms or or people that I follow that gives me news is Jeff Jackson. He's a congressman from North Carolina. And I really enjoy his content because it's succinct and it's from the House and he's actually like from in Congress. So he is quite reputable and knows what he's talking about. Um, AOC sometimes even does live streams, but I also follow some more local news like the Philadelphia Inquirer. So I'm also getting involved in local politics, not just the national and international side, which I know some youth um, can have a hard time getting into. I think we should maybe pivot 
um, this conversation, uh, at least from, you know, where we gather our uh, political information more towards uh, the groundwork that all of y'all do um, within your um, respective communities. That uh, leads me to a question for Yesenia, um, since you are currently working for a nonprofit organization servicing your hometown of Philadelphia. How important is it for young people to connect with their community through civic engage engagement? It is so important. And I think, I think it does feel like there's some type of barrier in the beginning. Like why, if I'm not even old enough to vote yet, then I shouldn't like become political yet. Or a lot of people tell me I'm too young to make a change right now. I need, I should wait till I get a degree and then get a job and then have financial stability and maybe move up you know, into some management leadership positions, then I can make change. And I'm like, no, you can make change right now, honey. You do not need to wait that long. As long as like collective power, I think is so important and so underrated. Working with your community, getting involved in your community and like awakening your community. I would like bring my other friends to my grassroots organization or to my nonprofits and ask them for like for their help, for their manpower, for their volunteer work, even if it's just like an hour a week, or even if you could only come to that protest that happens every so often. And, and not only do you make a change in your community, but it truly does change yourself. I would not have as much confidence to come over here right now and come on this very radio show with you guys and talk to you guys about this if it wasn't for my time getting politically active and getting politically involved because I've been able to make change at such a young age and knowing that has only made me more confident in what I'm doing and how I'm helping people and wanting to continue to help people help myself and help my community um, over the long term. Christian, based on your experience managing a local campaign, um, how can more politicians connect with Gen Z voters on a bigger, more national scale? That's a good question. I think political engagement in younger generations, a lot of it is very personal. And I think very issue-based, right? You you have to be incredibly motivated to go out of your way to show up, you know, to a rally, to a town hall, to whatever event, you know, that's hosted by a candidate or a politician. So in order to motivate people to show up, you have to show them that you're actually going to listen if they do. And poll after poll, right? Younger generation, especially Gen Z, talk about how uh, climate change is one of the number one issues that impacts um, their political motivations, right? And maybe even after you move towards the, the higher end of that bracket, the age bracket, folks that are, you know, like 23, 24, my age, right? They're a few years away from aging out of their parents' health insurance, right? So healthcare is also a big issue um, that impacts and people's pocketbooks, right? <laughs> the amount of money that they're able to save every month and their insurance premiums. So just understanding that these issues actually impact your future that you're going to have after you, you know, finish college, whatever, even though it's not visible at that moment in time, I think getting that buy-in means that you actually show up, you have the conversation, you make inroads with like local colleges, universities, talking to nonprofits. There's lots of organizations that for a living organize the youth vote, the youth voice, and making inroads with them is not difficult, right? That's what they want. So I would say collaborating with, you know, local organizations, nonprofits, um, and even municipal government, right? I'm probably one of the younger vice chairs of a, of a city commission uh, in the city of Hartford. And I, the only reason I even found that commission 
is because I took it upon myself to Google, right, boards or commissions in the city of Hartford and see what was a good fit for me or what I wanted to participate in. And not everyone's going to take the time to do that or even know that that exists. So making sure that you're advertising that, you're showing people in the community that, you know, regardless of your age, there's opportunities for you to get involved. Uh, so I want to open up the floor um, to a question I was thinking about um, of what national policy issues are you most concerned with as a Gen Z voter? Um, and I want to direct that question first to Yesenia. Um, I think this question is really interesting because when I was reflecting upon it, I think about local election. My priorities for local elections are different than national elections. Um, when it comes to this upcoming November, um, next year's when we're voting for presidential races. So I'm primarily focusing on local elections uh, for this upcoming November, and I'm prioritizing education. Um, I would say also uh, I'm looking into policing, and then I'm also looking into econo economic opportunities. But then when it comes to international elections, I am looking more at, I'm still thinking about education because I think it's so important for people, but I'm also looking at climate change and how it's being addressed federally. There's going to be different priorities for all voters, but it's especially Gen Z voters. And I hope more people think about thinking, think about that when they're coming into the election cycle and picking uh, their representatives. Sam. I would say for the policies that I care about, um, in terms of a like domestic level, um, that policies like universal health care are really important to me, um, or making like systemic changes, like like um, like in policing, um, or in the prison system. I think when it comes to an international level, uh, when it comes to foreign policy as well, finding someone who matches what the majority of Americans want is really important. The three of you have such strong voices, and I'm so glad that we got to speak to you today. Um, so to kind of wrap up, I would love to hear the three of you. Christian, we'll start with you. How would you describe Gen Z's political legacy? I think our, our legacy will be a transformative one. I think the voices that we hear in our generation are very uh, unapologetic about uh, the priorities and the general well-being that we advocate for on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think we're moving further and further away from um, the discourse that's more, you know, corporate and talks about, you know, being uh, pragmatic and what we can actually do and moving towards more of a, why can't we do what we should do? I love the word transformative. Um, so Sam, do you want to answer next? Yeah. Um, the main thing that I'm seeing is we're looking at like all of these policies that have harmed people. And especially when it comes to like capitalism um, and, and just unfair wages and a rising cost of living. I think that like previous generations have just kind of accepted it or those who have fought against it were kind of in the minority. And I think now that I think now like Gen Z um, who is having to carry most of, of the burden of those policies at this point, are fighting back and saying, oh, well, actually, we don't have to live that way. And so I think that is going to be a main like trend in the legacy that we leave behind. Yesenia. I do think, you know, Gen Z's legacy is still up, up and coming, and I'm really excited to see what we have going on. Um, I think Gen Z hopefully will be one of the most politically aware generations that we have. We've had 
so many once in a lifetime events in our short lives already. Um, I believe Gen Z is going to be the first generation in America that um, over 50% of people are non-white. Um, and that's very exciting to see. So I, I do think diversity and culture is going to be more involved in politics and people are going to be more aware of that. I also believe that I think by 2028, plurals, which is the generation Generation Z and millennials will be the biggest generation block. Um, and I, I'm excited to see whether or not there's going to be a turn in politics and in um, what we think is possible or realistic or pra pragmatic uh, will change by then. And politicians will actually take seriously uh, what we want to see and what we think is effective and what we think we can actually implement and change our lives, not just in a oh, it will change our lives and like talking about it type of way, but like materialistically feeling it, having that universal healthcare, having those social safety nets, it will be so important to making that long-term sustainable change that I know Gen Z wants to see, not, for, not just for themselves, but for generations. That was Yesenia Rodriguez, a graduate of Claremont McKenna College. Samuel Wyman is a senior at the University of New Haven, majoring in international affairs. And Christian Corza is a graduate of UConn Hartford. Many thanks to our disrupted interns, Letitia Peters and Joey Morgan, for hosting the roundtable. Letitia is a senior at Claremont McKenna College in California. And Joey is a graduate of Eastern Connecticut State University. For more on Connecticut elections, including how and where to vote, you can find this episode at ctpublic.org disrupted. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tolarski. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcast. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Here's to our democracy.